Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a new podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. So for those of you living in some kind of trade-free bubble, NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement, a trade deal between America, Canada and Mexico. Donald Trump thinks that it is the worst deal ever. Others disagree. He's fighting it out on his Twitter account. On August 27th, he tweeted that NAFTA was the worst deal ever and that he may have to terminate it. So we're recording this just before the second round of NAFTA renegotiations in Mexico City, uh, which will delve far deeper into the weeds than any of the president's tweets. Luckily for us economists, they will involve some really interesting techie discussions on how to write the rules governing North American trade. Working out which fights to watch is really difficult, so we have picked out three of the most interesting ones. First, the controversial bit of the deal that lets companies sue governments. Some don't like it because they say it undermines American sovereignty, but we'll explain why a deal without it is unlikely. Second, Chad's favourite, the system of trade remedies and trade disputes. This is an area where fundamentally the fight is over how integrated America, Canada and Mexico want to be. Third, rules of origin. Chad thinks this is a snoozer, but I disagree. As the Trump administration tries to use the deal to create American jobs, this is where the action is. We'll explain how it's all very complicated. You're right. It is all going to be very, very complicated. So Sumeya, to kick us off... Tell us about this part of NAFTA that lets foreign companies sue governments. What's that all about? This is Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. Uh, Trade economists love acronyms. This is super, super controversial in Europe. It generated huge protests, placards saying, you know, corporates undermining government, slightly snappier slogans than that. But anyway, it generated protests. And it's also been fairly controversial uh, in America. So there was this famous example under NAFTA when this Canadian company TransCanada sued the government for $15 billion uh, after the Obama administration blocked the Keystone XL pipeline. So from the government's perspective, this was just a regulatory issue. Uh, It was related to the environmental effects of the project. It's this really big project. But the company said, no, no, this violates our rights under NAFTA. Uh, We deserve compensation. Now, uh, Trump ultimately reversed the decision, so the case isn't really a thing anymore. But the idea of a foreign company getting compensation from the U.S. government for something that the government feels it should have control over made a lot of people feel really, really queasy. Uh, There was this other famous case in a separate deal which involved Australia when the government imposed plain packaging laws on cigarettes as this public health measure, and Philip Morris, a tobacco company, sued them. Now, I should be clear, this system lets investors sue for compensation if the courts find in their favour. It doesn't force the government to reverse the regulation or law, but that's still enough to get a lot of people upset. That's that's right. A lot of people are very upset about this. So, But how does this relate to NAFTA and the negotiations? What does it seem like the, the different sides in NAFTA want? What's the fight going on here? I think that everyone agrees that you could update the rules of ISDS in NAFTA to clarify when governments have the right to regulate. But there are some more philosophical differences. So first of all, there's some conflict within the American side. So the instincts of the Trump administration are, you know, this idea of America first. So they're skeptical of the idea that 
these, you know, panels created by this international deal so could somehow rule against the American government. That's super awkward for them. On the other hand, you have American businesses, or they're the investors that would actually do the suing. They would say, well, why is the American government so annoyed about this? They've never lost a case. And hey, getting protection for our investments in Mexico or Canada is really important. And so they've actually said, you know, if you really want to weaken ISDS, then that could undermine our support for the deal. So going into the second round, Robert Lighthizer hasn't actually decided on the American negotiation position yet. Meanwhile, the Canadians have their own system, which they are putting forward, um, and they've been inserting this into other trade deals. This is this investor courts system. They want to revamp the whole thing and have a permanent court rather than these one-off panels, which are super opaque, uh, arbitrating between investors and governments. But Chad, tell us about the economics of this. Why would any government accept the right to be sued? So historically, these were mainly deals that were designed to help developing countries and help them attract investment. So imagine you're Mexico and you're Mexico in the 1980s. What you want is you want to encourage rich American investors to come set up infrastructure in your country to maybe help you develop oil wells or those kinds of projects. But the concern of the American investor is if they come in and actually do that investment, once they've done it, the Mexican gov government might actually expropriate all of their hard work and take it away. Well, what ISDS does is it makes it really expensive for the Mexican government to treat that investor badly. If you do, the government gets sued and potentially has to pay money. That helps to make the investor feel comfortable in the first place and actually have them make the investment. So these investments or these agreements first started to pop up in the late 1950s, early 1960s. In fact, the very first one was uh, between Pakistan and Germany in, in 1959, and they've basically taken off since then. Okay, and so the perspective of the Mexican government here is they want their hands to be tied to convince the foreign investor that, yeah, sure, they won't expropriate their stuff. Okay, so I get that. Now, supposing you're an American investor and you're trying to persuade the current Mexican government that these things are really, really great, what evidence would you use? Well, I guess as an economist, first I'd hesitate a little bit because there is some evidence out there that the investment, the foreign investment is correlated with the governments taking on these investment treaties and ISDS. But there really isn't strong evidence that it's causal, meaning that it was the implementation of these agreements that actually led to the investment. It could have been that in anticipation that there was going to be a lot of investment, they decided to set up these sorts of regimes in the first place. So I think the evidence as economists, we would, we would say, is, is, isn't quite there, isn't very strong um, to, to support pushing too heavily on that. Okay. And now I uh, say you're the Canadian government. What would you say to people who say that, oh, you know, the original version of ISDS and NAFTA is, is fine? There is another economic concern that comes to mind, especially in light of, you know, the cases that you talked about, Keystone in, in the Australia plain packaging, and that's the concern over what's called regulatory chill. And the idea there is if we give investors too many rights, make it too easy for them to sue and get big damage awards in these kinds of cases, that may actually discourage governments from implementing the types of domestic regulations that they want to implement to protect consumers, the environment, uh, labor standards, and those kinds of things. So that's a secondary and also important concern, regulatory chill. And so the original version under NAFTA 
doesn't kind of clarify to the extent that modern versions do what rights the government have to regulate, right? But, okay, so what's the evidence? Is there any evidence that these deals, when this right to regulate isn't very clear, do have an effect on making governments more cautious? Not really. I mean, I think we, we've seen cases, you know, as you mentioned, and so this is definitely part of the public debate. Um, but the general concern is that regulations are always in, evolving in light of new evidence and in light of changes in what we learn about science. And so this is perpetually going to be a concern that regulators are going to want to be able to make changes to protect their citizens from certain hazards out there. And they don't want to feel constrained by these types of agreements. Not to defend the current system too much, but in some of these ISDS cases, ISDS probably gets a worse reputation than it actually deserves. So if we go back to talk about the Australia plain packaging case, it turns out that Australia actually won that case. And not only did Philip Morris lose, but they ended up having to pay the hefty legal bills of uh, Australia and the Australian government for actually bringing the case forward. All right, but now let's get back to NAFTA. So Sumaya, Tell us about the, the Canadian idea here in this investor courts story. This idea of the Canadians clarifies the right to regulate. It does make the system more transparent. There are public hearings, public documents during cases, professional judges. So that's all, you know, lovely. But they have a bigger idea. They're trying to set up a bigger system. Now there are, I think in the world, over 3,000 of these investment treaties with ISDS. There's this noodle bowl of opaque deals. And they're also potentially generating these conflicting rules. If the whole point of this thing was to give investors certainty, having all these one-off panels making individual decisions that don't set any kind of precedent sort of does the opposite of what it was supposed to. So if you set up a court then that could be international, you could have precedents, you could have appeals, then maybe you could actually get closer towards what the philosophy of this idea was. That all sounds great. But tell me, look into your crystal ball. In this particular case of NAFTA, where do you think the fight over ISDS is going to end up? Uh, if only I knew. Uh, so I think American businesses are fairly scornful of the Canadian idea. But my guess is that there is going to be some form of ISDS in whatever trade relationship ends up forming between these three countries. So American investors will push it really hard. But also just because any weakening of ISDS could set a precedent for future trade deals. So suppose the US wants to have some kind of bilateral investment treaty with China, then having ISDS might seem more important then. So any weakening within NAFTA would be unhelpful for future trade negotiations. So if I was looking into my crystal ball, I would say that there will be ISDS in NAFTA 2.0. Okay, on to fight number two. This is about trade remedies. Chad, set the scene. What are we talking about? Ah, trade remedies. These are my favorite. Okay, so to understand this, we have to go back, I think, and understand what the purpose of NAFTA actually was. So NAFTA was cutting tariffs, getting rid of basic trade barriers between the three countries. But each of the countries still has the ability to use some sorts of emergency tariffs in special circumstances. And these things are called trade remedies. So here we're talking about countervailing duties. So the idea is if one country imposes unfair subsidies on certain products and those get exported into your market, you can stop them through a tariff. A second set is called anti-dumping duties. So if the foreign firms sell their product in your market at too low a price and that hurts you, 
you're allowed to impose these kinds of special tariffs. But in NAFTA, there are these special rules that if your exporters have actually been affected by a trading partner's use of anti-dumping or countervailing duties, there's a special court that you can go after and actually challenge these things. And that's what the fight is all about here. Oh, we do love courts uh, in NAFTA. Okay, so where's the drama? What are the sides' positions on this? So the drama here is over something called Chapter 19. So that ISDS part of NAFTA was Chapter 11. This is Chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where the disputes would get fought. The Trump administration wants to get rid of this Chapter 19. It doesn't want to have any constraints on its ability to use these trade remedies, anti-dumping, countervailing duties against imports coming in from Canada or Mexico. And Canada and Mexico... They don't like that at all. They want to keep Chapter 19. So as I understand it, this is a really, really big deal for Canada. Why is Canada so opposed? I think, again, to understand that, we have to go back to understanding the 1980s. And so this is the period before even NAFTA was negotiated, when Canada and the United States were negotiating their first trade agreement together, the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, or CUSFTA. Back in, in at that time, the United States was also a big user of these kinds of trade remedies, and Canada's exporters were getting caught up in these things, exports of codfish and rad, raspberries and softwood lumber. Canada, when it was negotiating the trade agreement with the United States, said, hey, we want you to stop this altogether. We want you to stop using anti-dumping countervailing duties on our exports. We want to just ban this all told. And the U.S. said, no. So this court is sort of a fast way of settling disputes. It was the compromise that the two countries came came to. Okay, but there was a lot of drama here, right? This nearly brought down the deal. So they were trying to negotiate sister or whatever it was. Um, and the, the Canadians walked out. They were like, no, if you're not going to promise to have to not to impose these trade remedies, then we're just not doing a deal with you. And so the Americans brought in James Baker, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time. And he said, you know, fine. Uh, he slammed this piece of paper down on the table and said, you can have your goddamn dispute settlement mechanism. And, you know, lo and behold, the deal was saved. So, you know, Chapter 19 was a really big deal. It is, it is worth keeping that in mind. And I think stepping back a bit, the Canadian perspective is, well, if you really think that North America is an integrated economy, which is what the deal is supposed to be trying to do, then you really shouldn't be using these tariffs at all. London wouldn't impose tariffs on haggis imports coming from Scotland. EU members wouldn't impose them, you know, within the EU. You know, you, you can kind of see where they're coming from. I guess, okay, so let's just think, you know, in the negotiations, supposing you're America, I guess you might say, well... Chapter 19 isn't really used very much these days anyway. So do we really need it? So that's, that's a good question. Look at that argument. What I would say is, well, let's go look at the data. So when you look at, at the data, it turns out there hasn't been much use of this Chapter 19. And there hasn't been all that much use of anti-dumping or countervailing duties between the NAFTA countries during that period. So that might be evidence. On the other hand, though, that this Chapter 19 thing is working really well. It's actually a deterrent to stopping anti-dumping use against each other and therefore maybe why you want to keep it. But a better argument might be that actually over time, what's happened with the regional integration within NAFTA is that it was going to tend to be used less frequently anyway. So take an industry like steel. Back before NAFTA, the steel industry in the United States would frequently use anti-dumping countervailing duties to stop imports from coming in. 
American companies would come forward and ask for these cases. So over time, what's happened is these American companies have become more like North American companies. And so now they also have subsidiaries in Canada and in Mexico. And if you're thinking about starting an anti-dumping case and what exporters you want to target, well, you probably don't want to target your subsidiary and stop their trade from coming in. So that's probably also a contributing reason why we've seen many fewer of these types of tariffs being imposed on other NAFTA countries. Okay, well, that all sounds great. Chad, do you think that there's a chance Canada and Mexico might back down and maybe let Trump kill Chapter 19? So if you'd asked me that question in any of the previous three administrations, I might have said, yeah, there's a chance of that. But remember, the Trump administration is all about economic nationalism. And since they've come into office, they've made a point of stressing their love of import tariffs. And so we're seeing a lot of these trade remedy cases going on right now that are affecting Canada and Mexico over products like softwood lumber, uh, a new case on Bombardier regional jets, Mexican tomatoes, sugar. The Trump administration just doesn't seem shy about using any sort of tariff protection that it can find out there. All that leads me to believe Canada and Mexico might push harder than normal in this instance to, to try to keep this chapter 19. Okay, well, we should watch the president's Twitter account for news on that. Now, for the final fight, at least of this podcast, rules of origin. Now, this is not a snoozer. I love this one because it's an area where no matter how much Trump tweets, he still has to confront some cold, hard economics. Okay, I'll give you a chance to convince me this is not a snoozer. But first, you have to start by explaining what are rules of origin? What is this? Uh, listeners, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. Okay, so in the modern world, supply chains are really complicated. So a car or a phone is made up of lots of different bits all coming from around the world. So think about a free trade deal that allows stuff to move between Mexico, Canada and America. It's kind of obvious that something completely made in Mexico would be able to go into America tariff free. But what if you start having more and more components of that thing come from other countries? So what if a computer chip comes from Taiwan or some other component comes from China? The rules of origin are a way of stopping too many of those other countries' components flowing into North America and piggybacking on this free trade area that they've created. So they say how much North American content has to be in something for it to count in the deal. Chad, why is the Trump administration so interested in rules of origin? So just as you said, they see what they think of are lax rules of origin as a way that imports from countries outside of the deal. So the Chinas and Taiwans of the world, imports from those countries are sneaking into America through the back door. And they think that by tightening the rules, that companies will somehow be forced to make more of their stuff in North America. And they're thinking that it might lead to actually more jobs. Now, there is some economic evidence to suggest that the production side of the story may be true. So a recent study by Paula Conconi at ULB and her co-authors found that the really strict rules of origin in NAFTA do tend to reduce imports of parts from non-NAFTA countries. But the job story, I wouldn't say, is necessarily there yet. Okay, but let's talk about some specific proposals that might be on the table. What do we know about the rules of origin story so far in NAFTA? We're pretty sure that the Trump administration wants to make them tighter and raise the requirements for the amount of North American content that goes into stuff. Now, there were some eyebrows raised at the press conference in round one when Robert Lighthizer, the trade representative of the U.S., said that he wanted to raise the amount of U.S. content in goods. 
at the moment we have North American content requirements, whereas he said, oh, hey, we want American content requirements. That is a really controversial move. It's also probably a no-go for the Mexicans. Anything that could be seen to be generating more U.S. jobs or special rules for America would just be toxic politically in Mexico. And fundamentally, they have to sell this deal at home at the end of the day. It's also probably a bad idea economically. It just gets more complicated. It's arbitrary. And it also just fundamentally undermines the idea of creating this integrated regional economy. So aside from that, the Mexicans and the Canadians, they do seem fairly open to exploring ways of tightening the rules of origin. In the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the last go at updating NAFTA, they, you know, there were rules agreed. And I really do think we can expect to see some movements there. I think that's probably right. Now, that's all good in theory, but what products, industries is this, like, is this discussion likely to, to come up in, do you think? I'm fairly comfortable in predicting that autos are going to feature heavily. So the Trump administration is really interested in these because they are obsessed with bilateral trade deficits. And if you look at the bilateral trade deficit, then autos are a very, very important part of the uh, bilateral trade deficit between the US and Mexico. Economists have other ideas on what you should be targeting in a trade deal. But, you know, put that to one side. The Trump administration really cares about this. And actually, this is an area where the NAFTA rules are kind of old and they're kind of weird. Uh, they were written when cars just looked quite different to the ones that are built today. Modern cars just have different components to older ones. Okay, so Chad, at the moment, cars made in North America have to be at least 62.5% North American to go from Mexico to the US without tariffs. What would happen if the New Deal said that had to be eh, 100%? 100%. Wow. Okay. For companies that still wanted to use parts or components from countries outside of NAFTA, so suppose China, they basically face two choices. They could revamp their supply chains. They, so they could try to use more North American content. But the implication of that is they're going to generate cars that are much more expensive for American consumers. There's a reason why they weren't using this North American content for all of the parts in the first place, that they were trying to use stuff from foreign countries because it was cheaper or higher quality. There's also no guarantee that the new North American content would come from America. It could come from Canada or Mexico. And there's also no guarantee that companies are going to actually create these new parts and components by hiring people. They might do it by hiring robots and, and turning to automation. Make robots great again. <laughs> That's right. The second potential choice, though, is that some of these companies may just say, you know what? These NAFTA rules of origin requirements, 100 percent, that's just way too costly for us to be able to produce a car that consumers are going to be willing to buy. So instead, what we'll do is we'll buy the parts and components from countries that are outside of NAFTA, and we'll just pay the regular tariff, the regular normal tariff, and not get zero tariffs on this stuff and not get the special preferences, in which case they've had no effect on actually encouraging additional North American content by actually changing the rules of origin. Okay, and one of your colleagues, Caroline Freund at the Peterson Institute, uh, she did a paper looking into this. It was a really great paper. I would encourage everyone to read it. And so she found that if the, first of all, if the NAFTA content requirements increase, that doesn't necessarily raise the amount of U.S. content in something. But she also found that the rules in NAFTA are already relatively tight. So she looked at transport products, which presumably includes autos, and she looked at 
products going from Mexico into the U.S., so the most controversial stream, according to the Trump administration. And she found that about a quarter of them didn't go in under NAFTA. So a quarter of them were already saying, you know what, this deal is just a bit too much for me. And that is above average compared to products with similar tariffs. So if a quarter of products are going in outside of NAFTA, then that suggests that maybe no matter how much they try, the Mexican, Canadian and American governments just don't have that much wiggle room. They don't have that much room to tighten. So I think you may be right. And that may be where the cold, hard facts of economics ultimately confront the Trump administration in these negotiations. Okay, but tell me, look again into your crystal ball on rules of origin. Where do you think this fight is going to end up? Okay, so Mexicans and Canadians, there's probably room for some compromise there. But the big fight isn't between those three governments. This is really interesting and really complicated because the fight is with businesses. It's They need to organize their supply chains and you've just got this trade-off. So there's, a, there's another player in the room that Donald Trump is just not tweeting at. And they're really, really important. And that's why this is also so interesting. Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of fight number three. So in summary, Trump is painting this as America versus Mexico, but the biggest fights are much more complicated than that. They're about how you make everyone pay attention to the same rules while respecting sovereignty. They're about what it means to be in an integrated economic area, and they're about making a deal that companies will actually use. Now, for some acknowledgements, We just wanted to thank some of the special trade geek friends who helped us out a lot on this episode. So let me start by thanking Henrik Horn, professor at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm, for his work on ISDS. Jennifer Hillman, former WTO Appellate Body Member, ITC Commissioner, and current Georgetown Law Professor, for her help with trade remedies. She's been so generous with her time. And thanks also to Carolyn Freud here at Peterson and Paula Conconi at ULB for their work on rules of origin. That is all from Trade Talks. So please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And if you have specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes on Twitter. And I'm at Chad Bown. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's at trade underscore underscore talks. And two underscores to reflect just how far apart two sides of a trade deal might seem. I think, yeah, we still need to work on the tagline. Okay. Okay.